Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. More people today are giving real attention to the subtle cues from source that can lead them into an entirely altered view of reality. They're noticing that plants are intelligent, that thoughts are causative, that energy is information, and illness can be addressed by fixing energetic imbalances. This is not your father's idea of what it means to be spiritual, or what your therapist might agree that it means to be in your right mind. But as more of us share these experiences with one another, we're seeing where true health resides. The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you're into what's happening here, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Share this episode with homies at the Sound Bath, post about it on social media, and leave a rating on iTunes. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. What happens if, at the first signs that you're finally going sane, the world thinks you're going crazy? The insanity that we live every day has people slaving away at jobs that they hate, on call 24 hours a day, glued to manipulative digital devices, suffering at record rates from depression, obesity, and addiction, all while devastating the ecosystem that gives us life. This craziness is the product of a mindset that treats everything within reach as dead matter, ready for exploitation, and considers human beings as isolated brains motored about by bodies that are sloppy accidents of nature and which can be replaced and upgraded by technology of the kind built by Elon Musk. For many of us, the process of dehypnotization from this mass market illusion starts with subtle shifts in our own perception. We have anomalous experiences that don't fit the standard materialist worldview. Then we have to deal with them. Nearly everyone who has that crack-in-the-sky moment goes through a period of doubting the truthfulness of their own perceptions and a difficult recalibration of what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. This process can range from mildly disorienting to outright shattering, and it can be made worse by not having people nearby who you can speak with honestly about what you're experiencing. Spiritual groups ranging from traditional religions to more ad hoc informal consciousness scenes become used to talking with people about how to navigate those early encounters. Sometimes those discussions can be illuminating and supportive. Other times, they can be a form of indoctrination into a narrow set of beliefs that limits your ability to fully engage with everything that becomes available to you. But so often, people are waking up in this way without anyone nearby to help them ground and make sense of these experiences. Honestly, I hear these stories all the time. That's why Evolver is launching a new project, which we call Evolver Awakening. 
is a consciousness community and learning platform for people who are opening up spiritually and are looking for context, peers, and teachers they can trust, and not have the answers to their questions come from only one lineage or perspective. It kicks off on Monday, March 25th, and if you're curious, I hope you'll stop by the website, EvolverAwakening.com. We're starting with two exciting online courses, one preparing for your shamanic initiation, the other about cultivating intention to serve your higher purpose. The teachers include former podcast guests, Itzhak Beery, Paul Selig, Ezzy Spencer, Mitch Horowitz, and Gino Yu, and also include John Perkins, Sandra Ingerman, Dean Radin, Flor DeMaio, among many others, 21 brilliant teachers in all. Plus, there will be much community engagement in Zoom calls and moderated forums. The cost is $10 a month. Yes, I said that right, $10. We want to keep participation easily available. So please, check it out at EvolverAwakening.com. Today's podcast relates directly to what we're doing with Evolver Awakening. As more people speak openly about their own spiritual experiences and the challenges that come with waking up, the discussion about how society can appropriately acknowledge and support this shift is attracting the attention of professionals. One such group is the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, or ASSIST. It's a network of psychotherapists and social workers that has the explicit mission to support people who have spiritually transformative experiences. As I discuss on today's episode with three people from ASSIST, often people will seek therapeutic help when they're having an opening, and the therapist they speak with will confuse their becoming sane with signs of mental illness. Rather than getting validation and support, they get medication and condemnation. ASSIST is an association of professional therapists dedicated to educating their field about spiritual emergence. I'm joined by three guests from ASSIST on today's show. Katrina Michelle, PhD, LCSW, is a holistic psychotherapist and adjunct professor currently based in New York City. Katrina serves as the executive director of ASSIST. Edie Nathan, MA, LCSW, is a licensed psychotherapist with over 20 years of experience specializing in the integration of psychotherapy and the world of spirituality. She's the author of It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Michael Garby is a licensed clinical social worker specializing in working with individuals who would like to have spirituality integrated into their therapeutic process. He is currently engaged in doctoral research on spiritual emergencies at Rutgers University. After having this conversation, I was struck wondering how many people over the past century who were having profound spiritual openings were convinced by their unaware therapists to dull themselves with antidepressants and SSRIs. It's tragic, but looking ahead, it's encouraging to think that one day, every therapist will be prepared to recognize and support the awakening experience within a therapeutic context. After all, shouldn't the point of therapy be to unlock your true potential and ground you in a surrender to love? Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. 
The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals. And scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. How do people find you to have a therapeutic connection to you when they're going through the kind of um, spiritual awakening experience that we're talking about? Well, so ASSIST is an organization that is designed to meet the integration needs of experiencers. So we train therapists, we train coaches, we train spiritual directors to serve and identify when people are having a transformative experience so that they're not pathologized and that they can be supported. And so I work with assistant in that capacity with the programming and an annual conference. And then I have a small private practice here in New York. So you say when they're, they're trained to identify somebody who's having that kind of experience. That person, let's say, is going through a depression mm-hmm. and is looking for some therapeutic help. Right. And doesn't even understand the energies that are in play or what's going on for them. So they're looking, they're, they're looking for a referral. They're going someplace and looking for a referral. Like, how does that actually happen? Right. Well, this is, this is what our organization is about. We are trying to reach the mainstream so that when people are having experiences that are out of the box, 
they start to have language and a place to go that they can trust. That is not just searching around on YouTube for random information, but it's research-based and it's working with professionals who have a clinical context and orientation. So that suggests that somebody is already kind of aware that they're having some kind of spiritual emergence experience. Yeah. And they're struggling with it. Right. And then they're looking for your organization specifically yeah. as a way to get to somebody who can be helpful. Right. There, well, we know we're looking for help. We're looking for ways to identify what we're going through and we're looking for community and support. And and again, I think this is about getting the language out there. So people, when, you, when you're having an experience, you know what to sit down and Google search for. I'm assuming that you must have had one yourself. I did. I had an experience that I think has brought me to this work. Uh, I was fortunate not to need the same level of uh, support with the integration because my experience was very positive. Uh, but my experience was a unit of experience, an experience of merging with cosmic consciousness that was unsolicited uh, when I was 20 years old, just walking down the city street. And it was a brief, fleeting, beautiful moment. And I had no language for it because these experiences are ineffable. Um, and over time, I found my way to this field of study in transpersonal psychology. And that's when I first found language with my peers that were able to say, oh, we call that unitive experience. I think for a lot of people, myself included, when the first crack in the sky moment happens, there's so little context for it mm -hmm. and so little discussion about what it is in the culture. Absolutely. That you don't know it's a spiritual experience almost. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. that's just that weird thing that happened. And yeah. you kind of half forget it maybe. You kind of put it on the shelf, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so what you're saying, what I hear is that possibly, tell me I'm wrong, <laughs> that you had that thing when you were 20, right. powerful opening, right. and then it took a while for you to actually kind of sort through what it was, and but it led you into a, into an area of inquiry that led led you to understand once you came in touch exactly. with the language. Yes, that it was actually a spiritual transformative thing. Yes, yeah. At the time, you know, this was New York City, and maybe the year two thousand or so. I didn't know what spirituality was. You know, I grew up in organized religion, and at, by that time, I was an atheist because I had rejected that. Which kind of? Orth I mean, reasons. can I ask organized? Roman Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> so so I had a lot of healing to do from that. And I didn't associate this with spirituality. I knew it was something otherworldly, but I wouldn't have called it God or spirituality. I didn't have the language to associate with it back then. I, I totally get it. Yeah. Very similar kind of thing for mm -hmm. me. Edie, what brought you into this kind of work yourself? Like Katrina, I have had experiences that have been really quite positive and did not bring me down like so many people um, experience uh, when they see spirit or when they see something outside of their bodies that they can't yet explain. And they go through life being misdiagnosed and they are brought down by those mis diagnoses and it's it's a it's a it's a terrible terrible outcome for these folks and so 
because I didn't have language for what I was experiencing, I was at a loss. I felt alone. I felt excited. I also felt like I was part of something that was bigger than myself. And who do you who do you talk to about something that feels so much bigger than yourself? So though I could have language for it, though I could uh, know that it happened, I uh, also felt very apart. And so that's really what brought me into this work per se, and how I interpret it, because my theme in terms of my, my work is grief and loss and trauma, is that it's a grief process. And that there is part of, part of this language also includes a loss of self as you are finding your footing with new reality. Well, in many mystical traditions, when they discuss that essentially leap into this higher awareness, for lack of a better term, it's considered a kind of death, that you die to it, that a part of you needs to be surrendered and let go. And then there's a there's the you know the the famous dark night of the soul period that can happen for people once they begin to process that shift and work through the fear of what it is to release something that is holding them back in a way from that thing that that place that they're beginning to access. That's correct. And one of the things that you brought up with Katrina is, you know, okay, so they just put it away. It's really hard to put something away that keeps knocking at your door. And it's so loud and it's so insistent and it, it doesn't go away. And so the more you try to push it down, the sicker you get. The, the, you know, it goes into your gut. We've been talking a lot in the world about gut health and about the brain and about, you know, all of the neural chemicals that are going on in our brains and, and it is affecting all of that. And my, my guess is that more people are experiencers than not. We just don't know what to do with it. I mean, the surveys I've seen, I think you guys even refer to it on your website, it's like what forty percent of people, when surveyed, will talk about, you know, having had some kind of unitary experience, spiritual experience, visionary experience, what have you. And most people, in that case, you know, sort of treat it as a kind of anomaly, hallucination, whatever, like not real, quote unquote real. But that that has a lot to do with how we see it for ourselves and how we explain it to ourselves. Actually, on the website, you have the, I thought it was really interesting. According to Assist's first survey of, I guess, 60 people who have had this kind of experience, 50% dealt with depression, 10% suffered from substance abuse, 6.7% had attempted suicide as direct or indirect consequence of their experience, spiritual experience, and only 5% indicated that they really had no challenges themselves. Michael, how did you get here? So, uh, like... Katrina and Edie, uh, I also had a spiritually transformative experience. In 2010, I had a kundalini awakening. And, and for the sake of those people who may not know exactly what that means. it's You could say it's associated to uh, with Hinduism, Vedantism, the chakra system. Essentially, the kundalini energy is associated with a, a serpent that 
an energy that lays dormant at the base of your spine. And when activated, this energy moves its way up through your spine, through your chakras. Um, in these chakras, we have certain psycho-emotional issues stored, trauma stored that are often undealt with. And as the energy moves up, it works its way through your trauma, makes you have to work through your trauma. My experience, as are, I'd say, many Kundalini awakening experiences, uh, was not pleasant at all. It's very physical. It's very psychosomatic. It's very emotional. It brings you to your knees. I've defined it as brutal. And the more you resist it, the more brutal it is. Did, you, did it happen for you in a yoga class? I find the Kundalini awakening to be very associated with trauma, trauma that's stored in the body. Most trauma is associated with loss. Most trauma is relational trauma. So let's say 90% of trauma is relational trauma. It's not what we think of as PTSD, where someone has seen his friend get killed, so on and so forth. Most trauma is relational trauma, uh, whether it was at the hands of our parents, friends, but essentially it's relational. And when the Kundalini awakening happens, it forces you to work through trauma that is stored in your subconscious, trauma that you've, you haven't wanted to deal with. It's an autopilot, so there's no off button. If there was, I would have pressed off a thousand times. But you can. Once the process starts, you can. Uh, my process did start due to intense meditation. I was a, a yogi for many years. So intense yoga, intense meditation. I, I, I could now define it as compulsive meditation and compulsive yoga. I was just using yoga to run away as opposed to what I had used before yoga. And um, it ignited this process. Am I grateful now? Yes, sure. The, the years and years that it uh, beat me up, um, you know, that I would have wanted to press stop and I couldn't, uh, maybe I wasn't so pleased. So would, have a, would a therapist or a therapeutic environment at that time have made a difference for you? No. And I think that's why it's so important that organizations like ASSIST exist. What you started off today with saying that uh, professional help, I think, is extremely important. I did look for help. I would have liked to have found some help, but I cannot say that no help existed. It was just hard to find. I guess it wasn't as much as in the mainstream as it's now becoming. So what you're left with is professionals who have really no idea or, or no clue how to work with spiritually related issues. Or on the other hand, which is also problematic, you have a plethora of internet experts, internet so-called gurus, and they can also be dangerous because they might be knowledgeable. I've encountered some of these individuals. They may, they may be knowledgeable. Maybe they have had their own experiences, their own awakening. Maybe they're not trained ethically. Maybe they're not trained like social workers are to value the client first to respect the client's process before their own. So what happens is there's a lot of instruction and instruction can be dangerous when we're talking about a process that's supposed to liberate the individual. So that, those were the two extremes that I found. Professionals that either had no experience uh, working with spiritually related issues or um, individuals 
online who had experience but were not professional and were not ethical, and that's a big problem. So, so as a social worker yourself, somebody came to you now having a Kundalini awakening experience similar to what you had gone through, how would you be able to help them? So uh, in my research up till now, a major theme that is coming through is just the need to validate and normalize the experience. And once the experience is validated and normalized, uh, right away, a large amount of the anxiety, because when people have these experiences, because like Katrina said, there's no language for it or it hasn't been discussed, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying experience. People are coming in scared. They don't know what's wrong with them, what they're going through. Another theme that's coming up in my research is that people think they're crazy. And then of course, when they try to go get validated and people say, well, you, maybe you are crazy, that's also problematic. So the biggest thing that uh, professionals can do is just validate and normalize the experience. Yeah. So we got to start with the premise of we live in a secular society where the spiritual aspect is essentially taboo. And if you take it seriously, you're discounted as in the scientific community, in a professional community, that effectively, you know, really these are psychosomatic hallucinations, a physical problem that hasn't yet been diagnosed, some aspect of that. So that that is in itself a challenge. But then there's this additional piece of, you know, how do we talk about these experiences in a way that's maybe not necessarily wedded to one particular lineage, right? Because, I mean, I'm just listening to you talk about Kundalini, which is essentially is an energetic freeing of some energy that's been essentially stored in a certain way in the body, right? That, you know, we know mostly through Hindu lineage, and you're using a language that comes out of that to describe it, but many mystical traditions are aware of the same thing and talk about it differently, different nuances, but effectively, these are universal experiences we're talking about that cross cultures. And you can see it from a Central American, South American shamanic perspective. You can see it through other lenses. You know, the interesting thing about yoga and the Hindu line is that because you're working with the body and if you're doing a lot of meditation, it has a way of turning that stuff on. Well, e even interestingly enough, even the medical field, the caduce, it's a staff representing the spine. And then what do you have on top? You have the wings. Right, And when that energy moves up the staff, aka the spine, and reaches the top, you sprout wings and you are enlightened. You fly away, right? So even the medical field, their symbol is representative of, right? Totally. Yeah. So what does it mean then to create a professional context for this kind of support for somebody? How are you doing it as a group? How does this assist see its mission in terms of training people for the work that they're going to do? Well, I think the big piece is that we're listening to the experiencers. We're not trying to come down as an authority or from one particular lineage or way of seeing things. We're coming from research that's based on what people are asking for, what their experiences have taught us that is needed. So 
we're coming from that perspective when we sit with our groups and we work with our therapists and at our conferences, we're bringing in new research and new discussion around this. What's the most surprising thing you've been finding? Well, again, I think like Edie said, this is happening to everyone. I think it's a matter of not having a label to point at it with or not wanting to call it spiritual because we've been perhaps taught that spirituality is religion and that means a certain thing. But I think this is happening to everyone. I I think it's a universal experience and it's just a matter of acknowledging it and calling it something, you know, similar. Some I think I think language is the hardest thing to agree upon. And that's one of the things that just ACIST and especially at the conferences that we try to do is bring the conversation to a level where people can bandy about how are we going to communicate about this and what's comfortable, what's not comfortable, why? And that it's okay to play with the contextual nature of the unknown. And it can be thrilling and fearful. I I know for me, my mother died 20 years ago, but before she died, she exchanged heat into my body because I was sleeping next to her and I had no idea what happened. I still get chills when I talk about it. And I woke up and she was still alive and I cleaned her up and I was able to gather my family. But she communicated to me in such a way that I could awaken with her heat. And my mother was a very proud woman. And so she, she, you know, was a little messy in that moment. And I could clean her and wash her and somehow make a ritual out of that deathing. And then I could gather. And so I had so much energy around me. But to be honest with you, I had no idea what had just happened. I couldn't communicate it. I didn't know what had come through me. And uh, funnily enough, 20 years later, my father dies and the same thing happens. And it's never happened to me before. So my my two um, trauma bearers and my two most important figures did something and communicated to me in ways that now I have words for because of assist because of the work that Michael and Katrina do and I do mm-hmm. in in giving us all a, a platform and a context from which to speak. So a lot of people find themselves flowing into this experience and then are depressed. You would think that spiritual opening is this beautiful, rosy, connect to the light, suddenly everything is available to you kind of you know experience. But in fact... For a lot of people, it's a scary, challenging situation where many of the things that they held dear to help them ground are taken away and they're left with this sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Not everybody. Let's just be clear. It's not everybody, right? And frankly, you know, you guys were saying yourselves, no, no, you didn't have that yourself. And honestly, I didn't really either. But boy, it happens, right? Michael did. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that gets approached in the therapeutic discussion? Well, I think we need to get away from the idea that spirituality is all love and light. You know, I think that's a very convenient <laughs> here, Western here. approach. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, spirituality is inclusive inclusive of shadow and light, right? Our true nature has everything within it. So I think 
from a therapeutic perspective, you're not looking to just fluff up the beauty and celebrate that. You're looking to dive into the depths of what does it mean to let go? What does it mean to surrender who you thought you were and what you thought was important when you see something now that reveals to you your real purpose in this life? How can you let go of the people and the things that were important and honor you know, the grief that's there and move forward with this path that, you know, once it's illuminated to you, it's really hard to say no to it, if not impossible, at least not without consequence. That's for sure. You know, if we think about the Demeter Persephone story, okay, and that, you know, Persephone, uh, the deal was, you know, eventually that Persephone was going to need to be kind of in the in the dark feminine for six months of the year, and then she could come alive into spring and summer six months of the year. And that's spirituality, perhaps, that you must find a balance between the dark and the light. Yeah, I, I always say, um, you know, be beware when someone's trying to sell you love and light, because I do believe they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> Because uh, you can't sell pain. Yeah. <laughs> you can't sell it. That's for sure. Um, so love and light. It's hard to give it away. Yeah. yeah that's for sure. <laughs> Although we'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's definitely, it's an empowerment process, right? It's a, it's a liberation process. So liberation from what? It means liberation from something that maybe you're carrying that's not comfortable. It's an empowerment process. So what does empowerment mean, right? You go to the gym, you want to get stronger. Is it easy? No. You, you, you have to exercise the muscles. There's pain. There's growth. You want to exercise your mind. Is it easy? No. You need to study and expand your, your mind, your brain. It's difficult. It's the same thing with an awakening. It's an it's, it's empowerment process, but that implies that you're going to go through stress, and growth and pain and everything that comes with that. And uh, to liberate, it's not easy. Right? It's terrifying. So to, to look at what's actually discussed in a therapeutic session, people say would be talking about how challenging it is to talk to friends and family about what they're seeing, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about when they go to work, how much they can reveal about what's really happening for them or whether they're even in the right job anymore, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. Whether is, is they this, can't even go to work anymore. Or even they can't yeah. go to work anymore. People sometimes are hearing voices. You're nodding. You're all nodding. <laughs> <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. makes you think you're crazy one out of a hundred might be crazy okay that's which is to say they're hearing voices that are not necessarily helpful Mm -hmm. to them okay which are and there may be a physiological issue there right how do you address that yeah 
well, I think this is delicate territory, right? Because again, nobody is the expert on anyone else's experience. And I think so much of the therapeutic process, whether it's specific to spiritual emergence or just in general, is about empowering the person to discern what's happening for themselves. So as trained clinicians, you start to develop a sense of knowing when somebody is present and capable to the to their reality and able to talk about it um, from from a context that is is logical in this external world. So when you're talking about somebody hearing voices presenting with what a traditional therapist might think of as psychosis, you know, you're going to go through your traditional way of perhaps reality testing. Do they recognize that I think, you know, that I'm not going to understand that? Um, one of the ways that we we understand this is if a person knows that you're going to think they're crazy, then maybe this is something else. I, I think they're generally people who are having these experiences know when there's a voice there that is that is not psychotic, a voice there that is there um, something else, you know, something beyond words, but yet audible to them in a, in a way that's helping them. Well, I mean, I know that when I hear that voice. But, you know, if I talk to certain, you know, professionals, they may not agree. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's the dicey. I know. I think I know when it's not going to drive me crazy. But then I have a litmus test that I use, which is, is it harmful? Is it telling me I should go lean over a ledge and look way down a thousand feet? Or should I move out of my apartment into the park and just eat grass, you know? Well, the the purpose of organizations such as Assist is that, you know, as professionals, we're trying to build spiritual competence within the professional community. So just like you said that, you know, someone's hearing voices and the voices might be benign, and but now you're going to go to a medical professional who's going to say, oh, oh, no, 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 that's that's bad, that's bad, and now you start second guessing yourself. The thing is, we need to introduce professionals into the community, into the professional community who are going to give the counter argument, the counterpoint. And that's the purpose of organizations such as Assist, who are training clinicians to go out into these communities, the helping community, and give a different viewpoint. That's the purpose of my research as a social worker. Right? My whole, the whole purpose of my research is trying to educate social workers to even if they don't know what to do with the presenting problem, at least they have competence and understand, oh, this is not necessarily pathology. This can be a whole range of other things that are spiritually oriented. I might not know what to do with this, but I can refer to other social workers who do have expertise. And that's actually part of the ethical guidelines, the ethical code of a social worker. If you don't know how to work with a problem, you are ethically mandated to refer out. So we just need to introduce helping professionals into the field who can be referred to. Michael, can you tell us a little bit more about your research? So my research, essentially I'm a social worker. I couldn't find help. When I, right, I went through my experience and I couldn't find help. Um, I do believe as of now, uh, social workers are on the front line of service provision in uh, majority of the country, right? So 
again, they don't have to be experts, but I just want to increase competence within the social work field. Because the truth is, a large majority of people are having spiritual experiences. Research shows that a large majority of people would like spirituality integrated into their therapeutic process. Unfortunately, research also shows that most people are not comfortable sharing of their spiritual experience with a helping professional because they feel like they're going to be judged or looked at as crazy or pathologized. And that is a big problem because that means there's a disconnect between what the people want and what professionals are offering. And that needs to change. So my research is aimed at doing that, is increasing spiritual competence within specifically right now the social work field as so a social we, worker. So how do we know that that people are are holding back in the therapeutic context because they're afraid to be judged? What kind of surveys are being done? Who do you talk to to make something like that like concrete? They they've done research. They've they've done research and they've asked people would you self-disclose, you know, do you, this it's in the research that that individuals are scared to disclose of their spiritually related experience with medical professionals, quote unquote medical professionals. I'm wondering if that's across the board the same based on religious background or cultural background or, you know, ethnic background, or is it, you know, are there certain groups or lineages where people are more comfortable with that kind of self-disclosure? You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not so sure. What I, what I do know is I think these spiritual phenomena, I think, haven't been discussed widely for a, a long period of time. You know, I know, for instance, uh, a book that was very helpful for me, actually saved me at a point, was Gopi Krishna's book. It was called Living with Kundalini. Um, that's what I found when I couldn't find any other assistance. And interestingly enough, when he went through his experience in India, in his book, he states that he went around looking in India for anybody who could help him with his Kundalini awakening, and he couldn't find anybody. And he was going to like the, the gurus everywhere. You know, this is this is what's happening to me. And even they didn't know what was going on. So I actually always found that fascinating. That book was written, what, in the 1930s, 1940s? It's about his experience in the 1930s, pretty much. Gopi Krishna as an Indian um, yogi who popped, basically, mm -hmm. and couldn't control it. And for years, his body was just flipping with energy pouring through it that almost incapac basically incapacitated him. It did. And... He says that at that time, that was such a rare occurrence that the high-level guru types that he went to stared at him blankly like, what is happening to you? We don't recognize that. Today, in Brooklyn, I can't throw a rock outside my window without hitting somebody who's having a kundalini awakening. It's fascinating. Right. What is going on? Mm. Right. Is something happening now? Like when you look at the research, and are you seeing a frequency of people getting switched on now compared to, say, 10, 20, 50 years ago? Or has this been a steady state all along, and now we're just noticing that it's happening and people weren't talking about it before? I think having context for it helps. The fact that people have a language to point to helps, whereas before they may have just gone to the therapist and said, 
you know, I'm, I'm having problems and they'll say, okay, you're having anxiety. Let's put you on some medication or this must be bipolar disorder. And, you know, let's manage that another way. But I think now the word is out. Certainly the popularity of yoga spreading this language is, is at least coming out there. And, you know, I'm not sure what the research is on this, if we have enough research yet to say whether or not it's increasing. Personally, I do think it is. I think we're all triggering each other. I think we're all elevating each other. I think this is the point of what we're talking about. Spirituality essentially is recognizing the interconnectedness of our shared reality. So if Michael is being activated and he's spending time with others, I think we're all raising the energetic frequency within each other. Yeah, we're we're raising that energetic bar. And it's like the collective unconscious. Okay. So in that collective unconscious, we're feeding off of one another and the what we hold generationally within our bodies are actually, it's coming up and it's becoming more alive. And there's trauma in the air. And because there's trauma in the air, th- that, that trauma, I think, causes our brains to respond differently to information that we're getting and makes us more alive. And I was... Uh, I worked with psychic kids, and there wasn't one child who did not have some kind of trauma, relational trauma experience. And it, I'm sorry, it, could you explain what that means, a relational trauma experience? Um, traumatic experience with a family member, friend, aunt, uncle. Uh, the psychic kids generally, you're saying, almost without, without exception in that group, had some kind of very deep traumatic thing happen to them? I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna say all or nothing. Okay. I'm gonna say that yeah. for the most part, the most my part. experience was that many of them had some relational traumatic experience. And do you think it triggered their psychic opening? I think it closed some part of the brain so that they, so that another part of the brain opened. Because when you have that kind of trauma, you have nowhere for it to go. It's got nowhere to go. So, and I, I don't know the specific research to back this up, but there, there was actually a wonderful book written in the 30s and 40s by this wonderful psychiatrist whose name I can't remember. But it, it was about people who have had traumatic experiences and their ability to be seers and to be in this world in a different way. And it, that was data that was happening in the 30s and 40s. But, and, and there's another part of this conversation that I'd like to just piggyback on, which Michael was saying and Katrina, Katrina, Katrina was saying, Katrina was saying, which is about, you know, how do we communicate? How do we have, how do we work with these clients? And th- there's a teaching that's going on and thankfully through ACIST as well about how, making those data points and teaching the clinicians about what data points we're going to be looking for when we're in the room. And those data points will be what what is the level of communication? What is the level of experience? And how is that experience? How can we track our client's experience in the world? And how, you know, normalized or normative was it prior to their experience? And then what happened? And I'm going to track their histories. I'm going to track their family their families. I want. I, I'm going to look at all of that, and I think that Michael is is really, you know, at the forefront of that research. So it's it's really very exciting about you know how do we communicate. 
I think communication is key, right? So for instance, this podcast, right? We're communicating a message. And once we communicate what's going on within us, there is a sense of relief. So there's something that I like to call, it's the, the coming out narrative. It doesn't matter what you're coming out with, right? The coming out narrative is well in, very well known within the LGBTQ community, right? And until you break that ice and disclose to somebody, you know, I think I'm gay or I think I'm lesbian or whatever it is, until you break that ice and self-disclose, you are living in a prison. You are living terrified. You are anxious because you feel that you can't share your experience with anybody. And in this coming out narrative, when you can finally break that ice just with one person and say, hey, look, I think this is happening. And then that person says, oh, that's okay. I love you. You're good. I validate you. I normalize you, right? There is such a sense of relief, right? And the coming out narrative encompasses many themes. So in terms of spirituality, people are experiencing something that they are scared to talk about. Like you said, because they're scared to talk to their parents who might be religious. I don't know. They're scared to talk to their parents who might not have the same belief system, who might think they're crazy. There's this narrative going on in their head that if I, if I self-disclose, if I share, I'm going to be looked at as crazy, as bad, as less than. That's Even I went through that process. I'm a social worker, and now I'm going to start talking about chakras and and kundalini. Like I thought people would think I was, I'm a kook, right? So I went through that narrative as well. Totally understand. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you start talking about it, and you're like, oh, they get it. And then they get it, and they get it. And now like, wow, then I met Katrina and then I meet Edie. And now all of a sudden it's like, there's this organization called Assist? And you mean there are other doctors and social workers and, and mental health counselors who also believe in this? You mean I'm not alone? I'm not like this freak, this weirdo? There's like a community of people? And the thing is, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have had these shared experiences. And the more we talk about them, the less people are going to feel scared to share. So just this podcast, you know, thank you for having the podcast because it's so important just to talk and talk and talk and talk about these experiences. I want to catch something that you said in passing, which I think is fascinating. My parents are religious and I can't tell them I'm spiritual. I think there's a lot of that going on. The popular culture way of addressing that in those spaces where spirituality is supposedly sanctioned is that you're supposed to have a spiritual experience in a particular way according to a certain playbook with certain symbols, certain kind of behavior, right? Whatever your religious affinity might be, but let's just say Roman Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, you got to be lighting a lot of candles. You got a lot of <laughs> incense. There's, a, there's certain things that need to come along with the spiritual opening, so to speak, the born again moment. But what many people find, of course, as they begin to really explore what's happening in that realm without any expectation around a particular kind of um, a narrative, is that their experience may not fit 
the constraints. Well, narratives can be imprisoning, no? Exactly. And so can rituals. All of these things can be either liberating or imprisoning. And what I've been seeing among the people that I know who are going through this kind of opening experience is that uh, it's almost always a mix and match kind of thing for them. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And one reason why, quote unquote, meditation has been so valuable here in the West is that it comes with so little real cultural baggage for so many people because they didn't grow up doing it in a household where they were just going through the motions and pretending that they knew what God was, whatever God is. It's not a word I like personally. Right, right. (laughs) Right? Yeah. How often do you find you're encountering that in a therapeutic context with clients that you're working with? I mean, I've had clients who come to me because I'm not religiously oriented. So I've had religiously oriented clients, such a, a Orthodox Jewish female came to me because she felt like she couldn't speak to her rabbi. I've had Catholic clients come to me because they feel like they can't speak to their priest. So that says something. Right. Are they, sometimes that, that notion of having, uh, that you're having a direct encounter yourself with the divine is not sanctioned within the tradition. Yeah. It's supposed to go through the priest. It's supposed to go through some other figure in order to make it valid, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Like you're not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can't say that in my experience growing up Roman Catholic, there was ever permission or the expectation that you could have direct experience. I would, I would not imagine that, I mean... I can't speak for for every church out there, but I can't imagine that this is something that if you went to your priest with, they would know what to tell you. And and I've absolutely worked with clients who, you know, have shared this with religious professionals who just sort of say, well, maybe, you know, you need some help or some medication. You know, they're not even it's not it's just not in the expectation. And so often they just want to medicate it away. And it's it's a it's a shame that uh, that that's a platform that um, medicine has often taken, and it it um, it takes the prison and it just changes the format and the texture of the prison, but it's still a prison. Yeah, we're seeing at Evolver a lot more people at least acknowledging that they're having these kinds of experiences, even if it isn't that there are more people having them. At least now there are a lot more people noticing that they're having them and giving some space and attention to them and are really looking for community and context. So we're about to launch a whole new program, actually this month, which we're calling Evolver Awakening, which is a learning community for people who are having awakening experiences. That's great. It's, That's great. Yeah. The way we're doing it is it's 10 bucks a month. You get online classes, right? We'll be with, with many of the leading teachers that we've been working with over the years around topics that we've been doing, like there's one on preparing for your shamanic initiation. And it's John Perkins, Sandra Ingerman, Alberto Vialdo, Itzhak Biri, who was a guest on the show at one point. Um, and the other is cultivating intention to serve your higher purpose with people like 
Paul Selig and Ellen Goldberg and Ezzie Spencer, other folks. Every week we'll be releasing another class, online video class in each of these. There'll, there'll always be two courses running and when one is ends, it goes into a archive and a new one will start. But in many ways, honestly, the courses, as great as they are, are an excuse for the community. And it's more about people talking after they see the class, meeting each other, live Zoom events, and then live offline workshops and retreats and all of that stuff. We really want people to connect with each other because the guiding principle here is that, as we were saying, there is an emerging culture that is shaping around people holding the space for one another to go through their awakening experience. And that's going to happen through direct contact person to person in a respectful environment that is supportive. Mm -hmm. So we want to provide a platform for that, right? And it's for people who really don't need to be convinced that they should be doing meditation or yoga. They don't need to be told, maybe it's a good idea to try a psychedelic. That's not for everybody. Let's just put that out there. It's you're in it, right? And you want to make sense of it. And the meditation teacher that you're currently going to because of the meditation class you're in, when you say you're starting to see light when you close your eyes in the middle of meditation, they're saying to you, what's your problem? Haven't you relaxed enough, right? Aren't you calm? (laughs) Do we de-stress you to the adequate level? And you're stuck Mm -hmm. in that situation or you're having a, a real challenge. I'll just say that many of the people who I know who are going through this kind of experience, frankly, are not deeply suffering. They're fascinated and confused and don't know where to go. And then there is this group that is really looking for for help because they're 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 stuck in a in a scary situation. Scary in the sense of as we've discussed shadow materials coming up, that they're having problems working through themselves. And the, uh, the, the, the people around them really cannot relate to what's happening. And they may well be getting some kind of internal guidance to do something that's really self-destructive. And they don't know how to work with that. And there's nobody there who can help them talk through it, talk them through it. So we will be, uh, in a position where, uh, when folks are going through that kind of thing, helping them find someone to talk to. That's critical. It's beautiful. It's going to be a very important piece of this. Yes, very much so. The whole thing. So we scheduled this show a while ago before I knew we were going to launch the program exactly. But as it turns out, this is actually syncing up very closely and totally on topic. Synchronicity. Synchronicity. (laughs) Crazy, right? Crazy, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Let's talk about synchronicity for a second. Are you finding that synchronicity is playing a role for the clients that you see coming to you in their own process in in an interesting way? I mean, it comes up often. Yeah, people... People just seem to be in awe. I think once you step into your path and you just start to open up to what's there for you and roll with it instead of fighting it with the intellect, I think that's when the synchronicity comes. And 
Yeah, I mean, people don't necessarily come, you know, to talk about their synchronicity, right? Because usually they're coming for some larger support. But it is beautiful to watch how synchronicity comes up and to see, you know, it's it's such an awe-inspiring experience, even though it's happening all the time for people once they're on their path. Right. So even even to give a clinical example, we said, I said earlier, you know, we were saying that relational trauma, trauma that's caused relationally, it needs to be healed relationally. It's amazing always when you'll have a client who you discuss that with and then they kind of get it. They get it like, oh yeah, okay, my relational trauma needs to be healed relationally. And then you ask them, you know, or you try to assess, is there someone in their life right now at this moment who could offer them that corrective experience? And there always is. There always is. And that's just synchronistic, right? I didn't plan that intervention. I, can, I can't possibly set up an intervention that intricate. But they're in the room at that moment. They have this eureka moment like, oh, yeah, my relational trauma needs to be healed relationally. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, that's why this person's in my life right now. Yeah. Right? Well, who set that up? So let's get full on woo here. <laughs> And this, <laughs> this is where all the secular materialist uh, skeptics can dismiss us completely. At this moment on, I'm now ready to dive off the deep end. Okay, mm. You're having your own openings in your process. Mm-hmm. You're doing this work in a therapeutic way. Psychic stuff comes up. Mm. That's, they don't train you for that <laughs> in therapy school. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> now they work with that. Well, it's it's a gift to be able to be again. We're in this process with our clients, and we're all affecting each other. My work with my clients, you know, I'm not just serving them; they're serving me and my process. And and it's always a reciprocal relationship. So, I have certainly had many instances where, you know, so-called psychic things or just intuitive hits that seem a little out there you know i've had i was doing a meditation with a client once and some i opened my eyes and i could see his aura and i just felt compelled to tell him about it and it was sort of a new relationship but i said no i have to say this and it meant something so meaningful to him and you know that i think really did a lot for his you know so it's, it's trusting the process it's trusting what you can share how you can share it and trusting yourself too you know knowing again we're all interconnected and ultimately spirituality is not an intellectual process at all we're filtering it through that because that's how we make sense of our world but trusting that the, there are these other ways of knowing that are so vital to to sharing and it's it would be a disservice not to share that with our clients i i completely agree with you i had to learn how to temper what i saw and what i said And it took some years of being a therapist to negotiate how I was going to filter my, the information that was coming through to me. And because initially I would just kind of say, oh, so, you know, I think that maybe this might be going on. I don't really know why I'm feeling this way. And they got scared because I'd given them information too quickly. And as a therapist, we need to honor where our clients are. And even though we might see something, feel something, know something, 
that's coming through not because of anything that they've said. We need to let them come to where they're ready to share what we might already know. Now, that's not to say that with that kind of pacing, that once the client has a certain trust and they are in that synchronistic frame of mind, that they then won't be open to something that might be psychically happening to me. And I realize that I have my tells. And certain clients are very observant of my tells when something psychically is happening. For example, I blush, uh, my hands get uh, a little jittery, and those are my tells. Uh -huh. Now, some clients aren't as um, aware, and that's fine, but the clients who are, they, they see this. And, okay, Edie, what's going on? Tell me. I got to see this. T tell me. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me what you're seeing. I know you're seeing something. And it's like, okay. So I, I, I'm not going to say no because that would be gaslighting them, and they've had too many people gaslighting them. What I'll share is, so I, I, I felt that you, I, I could see your prison and I could see blood on your hands and I could see how you're trying to claw your way out. And I'm just wondering if instead of clawing your way out, you might try to find your key. And it's a eureka moment. It's, oh, I don't have to claw. I don't have to fight. I can, I can, I can have this key. And this key is within my soul, it's within my gut, and we start to work on the key. So. I, I love the word that Edie used, which is pacing. And pacing is very important, um, definitely in, in, in trauma work. And I believe a lot of spiritual awakening has to do with cl cleansing ourselves of trauma. And pacing is very important, not to push too fast, not to be too slow, right? Pacing is, is very important. And I think that's why, again, professional assistance with people who understand spiritual issues, I think it's important because they have that training. Client-centered, respecting the pace of your client, not pushing too fast, not pushing too hard. You know, and I've, I've seen instances where, again, internet gurus push too hard, push too fast, okay? You know, meditate on your third eye. You, you'd never tell someone who might be prone to schizophrenia to meditate on their third eye. Yet, like, that's like the new wave out there, third eye meditation. And it could be incredibly, incredibly damaging, so it's about pacing. It's about having respect for your client. It's about respecting the process and letting it unfold at the pace that your client needs. And that's the importance of the professionalism. And, you know, you bring up the, the psychic piece and there's a good chance that all of us sitting here we're born into it. Like, it's not like we manufactured it. And I think that we're all psychic. We all have that ability to tap in, into that. It's just a matter of whether we decide to listen or not, right? So in in this psychic ability that we have, it's, it's honoring its power, honoring the pace of it, how the messages come in, and also saying to yourself, I am going to sit here and just listen and 
you know, it is through what you're going to be offering in your new program and and what Assist is offering that gives a platform for people to find community and be okay with the woo-woo, but not ne- it, but it's no longer woo-woo. It just is. I want to thank you all for joining us today and being a part of this conversation. If somebody wants to learn more about ASSIST, which again is the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, where do they go? You can go to assist.org, A-C-I-S-T-E dot org, or you can email us at info at assist.org. And you have a conference coming up? We have a conference coming up in Atlanta, Georgia in November, and we'll be posting information about that shortly. Thank you for for continuing the conversation. And the more people hear about this, the less alone they feel. I feel the same. Yes. And I feel much less alone having you three around the table with me. (laughs) Thanks for your work on this, Ken. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you all. I want to thank Katrina Michelle, Edie Nathan, and Michael Garbe for joining us today and talking with us about this fascinating topic. You can find out more about the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, or ASSIST, at their website, which is assist.org, and you spell that A-C-I-S-T dot O-R-G. And I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.